If you would, take your Bibles and open with me to Matthew 12. If you remember last week, I told you we were going to be going verse by verse through 12 and 13 because it is a pivotal turning point in not just the Bible, but in history. If the Bible is true, then it speaks to truth of all areas of history. And it tells the truth about everything. And there is no other truth but this truth. Now we do have some Bibles for you. Large print. Anybody need one this morning. It is a huge print Bible. It is a massive print Bible. How can I convince you who are hard of seeing to take this? Maybe you can't see it from there. I need to walk the aisle. I don't know. Does anybody need one of these? They're really great. You got one? They're awesome? Look, I mean, we got, it's like Amazon's five stars. Come on. Nobody? All right. You said you didn't need them, and then I found that somebody stole three of them. So, hey, the Lord knows who you are. I'm not worried about it. So, here's an interesting point we find in Scripture. This is a principle. Uh, I'm going to be throwing a lot at you today, as if I don't normally. Um, But this is a principle that is true across, doesn't matter, races, nations, countries, times, none of that stuff. It doesn't matter. And this is a big thing. And if you have your notes, we're not going to refer to them much today, I'll be honest with you. All of that is for you throughout the week to maybe go back and reflect on what we've gone over. But there is one thing on the very front page of your notes that I wanted to put in the middle to stand out very big. And that is the idea that leaders speak for a nation. Those people who are appointed or elected leaders of any organization, doesn't matter if it is if it is a nation, a country, doesn't matter if it's just a city representative, doesn't matter if it's the elder care team here, does not matter. Those leaders that are brought in, appointed, approved, whatever it is, they must be carefully chosen because they now become the mouthpiece for everyone that they represent. Is everybody with me? Okay, this is very, very important. We could draw all kinds of political lines in this, and I don't care to, okay? But leaders speak for a nation. And in this situation here, what we saw last week between verses 1 and 8 is the idea of the Pharisees trying to impose their legalism upon Jesus and his disciples. And the reason was, is even though they were accused of doing things that were unlawful, we actually saw that they in fact were obeying God's law, but because they weren't meeting external standards, they were now looked looked down upon. This is the whole idea of religion, that you have to meet some sort of expected requirement in order to be accepted by God, by your performance, and legalism, which is essentially trying to stifle any possible progression that you would have by making you think that you need to reapply for acceptance with God. These are both very dangerous things, and the Pharisees were riddled with this. Now, it doesn't take too long to put the blocks together to realize that probably a lot of other churches that we know of or religious organizations or even parachurch organizations suffer from this same malady. It doesn't take long to put it together and realize when we see what what the Bible says about these things clearly. And so what we're going to pick up with is we're actually going to pick up in verse 9 of chapter 12. We've got a, a whole new scenario that's unfolding for us. Jesus was in the grain field, but it says departing from there, 
he went into their synagogue. Now, what is a synagogue? What is that? Do we have any synagogues in Portage? Oh, somebody gave me a synagogue's a what? It's a church? No, no, no. It is not a church. It is an assembly of a sort, but it's not a church. This isn't Grace Bible Synagogue. We could change the, the signs of that. You guys want to do that? Okay, just making sure. It's not a church. No, don't change anymore. I'm freaking out. <laughs> By the way, I didn't change all this. Somebody else did. So, it's a what? It is essentially a Hebrew learning center. See, here's what happened. When the Jews got all rebellious against the Lord, especially after the time of Solomon, the country divided into two. You had Israel up at the top and Judah at the bottom. And the Lord would only put up with so much rebellion against him. Israel refused to walk in his ways. They created idols for themselves. They were bowing down to everything else. And they even got so bad to the point where they were sacrificing their own children in order to try to satisfy the expectations of demons. Okay? So we're talking off the deep end here. The northern kingdom didn't last long. I think it was 722. They were out. The Assyrians came over and took them out. The, the, the southern kingdom, especially because of King Josiah, lasted a little bit longer until 586. But when they were both exiled out, because that's the requirement. If you don't follow the Lord, you can't stay in the land. And so the Jews were exiled and they were scattered all over the place. Now this is very important for us to think about from what happened to the Jews and how they came back into their land in 1948. They were scattered for all that time. Why? Disobedience. And what was their major disobedience? They killed their Messiah. They did not believe. And this is important because we're going to see how all that ties together today. So while they were in exile in Babylon, they still wanted to learn about the Lord. They still needed to have some sort of exposure to the Scriptures. So they started getting instances where they would gather together, and it was for a time of prayer, Scripture reading, and then usually someone would would uh, sit down and kind of go through and do an exposition of the Scriptures and give a rendering of the text they were looking at from the Old Testament in order to keep their heritage and their tradition going. Well, when they finally came back into the land and moved back into Jerusalem and all these other places throughout Israel, they brought the synagogue idea in with them as they did the Pharisees that came in with them as well. There was a lot they did to compensate for their own sin over here to try to stay in contact with Yahweh and yet they brought it in, and now it's become a bigger problem. Synagogues, probably not so much. Those are just places. Pharisees, big problem, right? Messed all kinds of things up. So, notice it says here, he entered into the synagogue, and this isn't uncommon. If you, if you follow through Jesus' life, he was always going into synagogues to teach. Why is that? They already have a foundation of the Old Testament, yes. And those are the people he used to reach, right? Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. That's the people. And does anybody remember what his message is that he's teaching? What is it? The kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Everybody doing okay this morning? Let's stop for a second. Everybody do this. One more time. There you go. Hopefully you brush your teeth this morning, right? Everybody's good. Everybody loosen up. It's okay. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. So it says here, verse 10. And a man was there whose hand was withered. Now, I don't want to offend you with this word, but he was crippled. That's the idea. You have a crippled man that, that for some reason, 
It's taken notice of. Now, I want you to watch this because what we're looking at today is the depths of just how hard was the collective heart of the Pharisees. What does a hard heart do? Especially when it encounters truth in such a way as this. Now, watch. There's a man there with his hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that, here's the interpretation for you that Matthew gives. So that, notice what it says, they might accuse him. Three interesting things I want you to notice about this. Number one, this man is singled out. He had some infirmity of some sort. How would that look if we singled out somebody here? That look good? No, not at all. So notice it's an embarrassing situation. It's something that immediately causes a great deal of tension within the room. Notice that by being there, the Pharisees don't care about this man being there. And that's the interesting thing. Common people were allowed to come to synagogues, the temple, the tabernacle. You had to be a priest to go in and all those things. In a synagogue, you had everyday Joes come in to be a part of this. Or Josiah's, I guess, since it's a Jewish idea. But anyway, Joseph's coming to be a part of this. But in doing that, they now make light of this guy. And why do they make light of him? What is the question they ask Jesus? Is it lawful? Everybody remember what your disciples do is unlawful because they're eating grain? Everybody remember that up in verse 2? Yes? So notice, the question is, are they keeping the law? Jesus, is it lawful to do what? Heal. Pause. Stop for a second. Everybody put on your Mortimer Schnurd caps and think with me for just a second. What does that tell you they know about Jesus? That he can heal. Think about this. Think about it real quick. You've got a bunch of guys who are all high and mighty on their soapboxes who are trying to keep everybody else in line by telling them what they ought to do. Okay, This is the essence of religion. Everybody else keep in line. And they know he can heal. They know that he can touch someone. Immediately they stand up, never could walk before. They know this. They know that he can come into someone who is dead and he can say, get up! And they stand up. They are aware. If they haven't heard it, they've seen it. But notice that's not what they care about. Their question is, here's, the, I mean, Matthew gives us a glimpse into their heart. Can we accuse this guy? Can we get him to do something on the Sabbath so that we have reason to move in and get rid of him? Why is that? Well, he was so popular, they were scared to death they were going to lead the people away from the Pharisees, and the Pharisees would have no power at all. Jesus' ministry wasn't just a back alley kind of thing. Crowds followed him. Throngs followed him. Multitudes followed followed him in the next chapter we're going to see that there were so many people wanting to listen to what he had to say that he had to get out on a boat and get out of everybody's way just so they wouldn't crowd him i guarantee you there were people getting out in the water trying to get close to him because they wanted to hear it they wanted to be close to him notice the pharisees don't care anything about this we want to see you heal somebody and if you heal somebody and it's the sabbath we're going to get you that's the idea this is the hard heart. Watch what happens here, verse 11. And he said to them, now I love it, because Jesus don't take flack off nobody. 
I love it. And he gives, he asks a question in the form of an illustration. Now stop. Aren't you already annoyed when somebody, when you ask somebody a question and they respond with the question? Don't you want to slap them? Yeah, well, we're not, we don't want to do that with Jesus, right? We want to pay attention to what he says. But look at the way Jesus handles this. Watch. He said to them, what man is there among you? Now think about this for yourself. Who has a sheep. Anybody here have a sheep? It's, ladies, it's not your husband, okay? Just making sure. Okay, so think. just put yourself there for just a second. What man is there among you as a sheep? And if it falls into a pit, when? On the Sabbath. So notice the, the connection here. If it falls in the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Now stop. Would that be work? I think it would be. It depends on how far down the pit is, isn't it? I mean, you can't, okay, guys, bring, you can't call Jerry to come and tow him out. Tow out my sheep. Have you ever towed out a sheep? Not today. It's good. Not yet. The day's not over yet, right? But think about that. I got to get my sheep out. Now, here's a question. It's a Sabbath day. And if you really trust the Lord, shouldn't you just wait until tomorrow? No. Why would the Pharisees not wait until the next day? Anybody know? Because when your sheep might die, it hits you in the pocketbook. Because it becomes about money, not about the master. Everybody see how greedy the hard heart is. Notice that Jesus knows this. Jesus wants to reach in there and take this example to strangle them into a point where they have to make some sort of... Whoa. If I was in this situation, yeah, it's the Sabbath, but it's my sheep. Well, I'm supposed to not work, but I got to keep this so I have money. My value and my worth is going to go down. This surely is an excusable offense where nobody will care if I do this, right? All of a sudden, we're not so religious anymore. Why is that? Because it might cost me something. Scary, scary. Notice it says here, verse 12, I love it. And, and I love that Jesus answers this. He's not scared of Peter or nobody at that time. Watch this. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? All the animal rights activists just go, Ooh! right? Yes, there is a hierarchy. Man over sheep. It's real easy. Not hard at all. Let me ask you a question. Are people more valuable than sheep? Yes? Didn't take long for us to figure that out, did it? No. Nope. No. He didn't believe in Genesis. Oh, Peter did not believe in Genesis. That's true. In fact, Peter doesn't believe any of the Bible. Everybody's in cahoots, right? Scary. Man, we live in a, such a scary, twisted world, don't we? I could talk about that all day long, but it ain't got nothing to do with the Bible, so let's not do it. Anyway, moving back to this, notice. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep and notice right there it's almost like jesus pulls back the veil on their hearts to see what's really there you're so concerned about whether or not you work or not but if it's going to cost you financially you'll get in there and you'll break that law let me ask you a question why wouldn't you go the extra mile for this man why wouldn't you help him think anybody greeted him at the door when he came in think anybody offered him coffee Think anybody invited him out to lunch afterwards? You see what I'm saying? I mean, this is just a new level of, I really don't care about people. I just care whether or not you meet my expectations. That takes no one nowhere. 
So watch what moves on here. Verse, verse uh, sorry, second part of 12. And notice this is Jesus finally giving the answer that they're looking for. He does answer it. It's not just an illustration of question. He gives the answer. And here it is. So then, it is, what's a word? Man, he uses that on purpose because that's been the question, isn't it? Is it lawful? Is it lawful? Is it lawful? Let Jesus tell you what's lawful. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, we don't abide by this now because we're not under the law. It wasn't given to us anyway. It was given to the Jews. But notice here, he wants to say, if you want to know how to handle the Sabbath, doing good things on the Sabbath is not breaking the law. Now, Jesus just couldn't let it stop there, could he? You ever sit there and you're like, oh, that's good. That Oh, you shouldn't have said that. You ever done that? It's like, why did you have to take that extra step? Jesus does it. Why is it? He has no fear. Verse 13. Then he said to the man, and imagine yourself there. Stretch out your hand. Imagine that. Does everybody have your hand out real quick? I'm trying to encourage you as much as possible in between Sundays to be in the Word. And so I've given you this. This sheet right here, it's got Mark 3, 1 through 6, and it's also got Luke 6, 6 through 11 on it. And the reason why I gave this to you is because it is parallel accounts of the same event. But if you're like me, one of the most frustrating things when you're in the Gospels, and okay, Matthew says this, and Mark says this, and Luke says this, and you've got three bookmarks out, and you're trying to filter back and forth and figure out which one's where, and you're getting all kinds of confused, I say, no, print it out, right? That way you can leave Matthew open and work through this. Now, real quick, let's read this account in Mark. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they watched him to see if he would heal him. When? Notice it. So that they might accuse him. He, to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to him, is it lawful to do good or to harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. See, what's happening here is where Mark got his information is giving us a different view into the situation. We go outside here after church and let's say that we see a car wreck take place. They come to, to, to interview us as an, eye, an eyewitness of the situation. There's going to be some of us that say, yeah, well, it was a red car that hit a black car. Some of us are going to say, well, it was an SUV, and then a sedan ran into the side of it. Some of us are going to say, I didn't like the wheels they had on that thing. You know, I mean, we're all going to bring different perspectives, but we're all describing the exact same event that's going on. This is exactly what the Gospels do. And so notice, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. Notice they wouldn't answer him. It says here, and after looking around at them with anger, hold it, stop. Jesus looked around at them with what? Anger. Why do you think he's so angry? What is it? Say it again, Steve. The hardness of the heart. Jesus is amazed that pious people would rather worry about keeping appearances than caring for others. This is one of the most dangerous attitudes that could trickle over into church in the here and now. 
We care more about how we look than the person next to us. Let me make this real clear. I love the color of this back wall. I love that we put lights that were made this year in the cross. Because the lights that were in there were from 1997, I was scared of a fire hazard. It's real pretty. I'm thankful for this area out here because I'm hoping that it encourages us all to grow closer together as a church family. But let me tell you this. This is change. It's not progress. There's a big difference. This is change. It is not progress. Progress is loving your neighbor as yourself. It is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It is being in the Word and desiring to be filled with the Spirit so that you are walking by the Spirit with Christ. That is progress. This is just change. This doesn't make us any better, and it doesn't make us any worse. None of that. It doesn't draw us any closer to the Lord. And I think there's an important, oh, there's lots of things going on in our church. We knocked down a wall and it... No. There's lots of amazing things going on in our church. Why? Because we're sharing the gospel with lost people, and we're disciple and save people. That's what we're to be about. So let's not get the issues confused. Let's not think for some reason that the person across the room that is hurting and unusually silent should not have one of us come up and engage them and hug them and pray for them. How amazing would this situation have been if the Pharisees all came up weeping because of their realization of their hardness of heart and putting their arms around this guy? How awesome would that have been? But here's the thing. Religion is a poison. And religion has a way of not just poisoning the heart, it poisons the mind. Why? Because religious people never do anything wrong. That's the problem. So this right here is for your personal study outside of here to make it a little bit easier if you want to look at this instance. I want to make sure that everybody got it. Let's go back to Matthew. Verse 13, then he said to the man, and remember, he called him to stand in front of everybody. Jesus is making a public spectacle in this Hebrew teaching center about this guy because he wants to draw attention to, number one, his power and the glory of God. And notice what he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. Put yourself there. Maybe you're riding the back wall or something. Maybe you're looking around somebody's shoulder and watching this happen. And this strange rabbi that no one knows anything about has just gotten everybody's attention by the words he had to say. And this guy who had an issue with his hand all of a sudden did this. And as he held up the other one, it was just as fine as could be. You would never know anything is wrong with it. Imagine. Now here's a question. What would your response be if you saw this? Amazed. Wow. What is it? Put it on Facebook. I got video here, a picture. Like, like. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Smiley face. Thumbs up, right? That kind of stuff. Raise your hand. If you would go, whoa, guys, we got to talk. How are we going to murder this guy? Because that's the response he got from the hard heart. An opportunity 
that is used to praise God. Because good and wonderful things are going on. You will always find that a religious people doesn't like it either because they didn't get the credit or they need a way to discredit the person of whom God is using to do the work. But murder? Murder! This is stuff we watch TV shows about. Not responses we have to God's activity of which he should be worshipped. You see what I'm saying? Does everybody see how twisted the hard heart is? Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might, look at the word, guys, destroy him. That sounds like a lot more than let's just get him arrested, let's just put him to death. This, I mean, this sounds like let's get him and his house too kind of thing. To destroy him. The Greek word there means to put out of the way or, or literally to kill him. Verse 15, now watch this. But Jesus, aware of this, why? Because he's God, he's omniscient, he knows all things. Aware of this, withdrew from there. He leaves the synagogue and many followed him. And what did he do? He healed them all. The situation got tense. What does Jesus do? Guys, let's go out here. Everybody be well. Didn't phase him. He didn't say, man, how come those guys don't like me? Notice he didn't do that. What do I have to do to be accepted in this country? Did everybody see that? Notice it wasn't, yeah, well, I'm not if I kill you first. Notice it wasn't that. Does everybody see how different Jesus is when he responds to opposition? Does everybody notice it didn't get him off task? He's still there to do what he's always been to do. There wasn't any rabbit trails. Like, Jeremy, you could learn that from Jesus, right? Wasn't any rabbit trails? Staying on target. Now, here's what's crazy about this. Verse 16. He healed them. But notice, and he warned them not to tell who he was. What does that mean? Can you imagine leaving the synagogue, following after Jesus? You got something that you want to take good grief. If he did that for Edgar over there, he can do that for me. He can help my problem. I got a corn on the bottom of my foot needs to go. Maybe. I don't know. Whatever it might be. But you've got a reason why you're going after him. He heals you, and then he looks at you and goes, Shh. Does that seem weird? I mean, he just called a guy with a withered hand in the middle of a synagogue, said, stretch out your hand. I mean, we see the exclamation points there. He just did something publicly. He removes himself, heals them all, and then he says, don't tell anybody who I am. Well, this is really weird, Jesus, because you just have a flaming billboard going on in there in the synagogue. So why in the world are we being all hush-hush now? What has happened? Anybody know? Has anybody ever heard of the term, the messianic secret? Has anybody ever heard of that? No one's heard of this, okay? You'll find in instances of Scripture where Jesus will do something, then it'll say, and he asked them not to tell anybody, but what, then what happens? They go and tell on him. Disobe they got 1 John 1, 9 before it was ever even written. They needed that, didn't they? We need to confess this sin. They go and they broadcast it to everyone. Why did Jesus not want them to tell? 
Take away from him being the Messiah. Mm. Oh, say it, say it again in the microphone. His time hadn't come. His time had not come. Now, here's the thing. I know that you guys have heard that I have wacky views on predestination and election. If you ever want to talk about that, my office door is mostly open. So, it will be for you if you want to talk about that. But here's the thing. The crucifixion of Christ is an event in history that has been predestined by God. It is Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 27, 28. You can read it for yourself. God did not predestine the men to act in an evil manner against God. And that's in your notes. You've got it in there when we talk about the messianic secret. But that is an event in history that had to be set in place and pre-appointed in time. Why is that? Because sin has to be taken care of. Sin has to be paid for. And Jesus is the only sufficient person of which to pay for it. So the Father placed this event in history that it needed to happen at an appointed time. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. John chapter 17, verse 1, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in the garden. Father, the hour has come. What happens after that? He's betrayed. He's arrested. He's put on a farce of a trial. He's condemned. He's crucified. His father, his, his time had come. His father made sure of when it would set out. So the messianic secret is the idea of Jesus orchestrating time and history in such a way as to where the crucifixion would happen at the exact moment that the Father had appointed it to happen. That's what it is. If you ever want to research it a little bit more, it's a good study. Verse 17. Notice it says, This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant who I, whom I have chosen, he is the chosen one of God, the choice one of God. What does that mean? It means that he is the one that has been commissioned with a specific task to be fulfilled. He says, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. In other words, God really, really, really likes him. He says, I will put my spirit upon him. Everybody see that? My spirit. If you've got your pen, you want to click it. And right next to where it says, I will put my spirit upon him. You want to write down. Chapter 12, verses 30 through 32. We're going to see how all this fits together here in a minute. I will put my spirit upon him. Now, this is from Isaiah 42. It's prophesied a long time ago, but notice, Matthew is applying it here. He will, and he shall proclaim justice to the who? Wait a second. He's going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That's not even on his agenda of people to talk to this time. Why is it there? You might think it's weird that it's in Isaiah 42, which is Old Testament, which foreshadows the fact or is a prophecy about the fact that Jesus will reach the Gentiles. Everybody see that? They were never excluded out of the picture. How about the next verse? He will not quarrel nor cry out. He's humble and he's not drawing attention to himself. Does anybody ever notice that Jesus never was looking for the mic? Anybody ever notice that? He never was, which says a lot about me, doesn't it? <laughs> But he, not, he never got up there and said, By the way, I'm God in the flesh. I'll be here all day. Thank you. <laughs> he never does that. He is never, what do you want to say? Publicly displaying himself out there as this is who I am kind of thing. Does he tell people? Yes. But is he putting it on the front page of the paper? No. Some of you got that joke. Moving on. Nor will any <laughs> I couldn't let it go, could I? Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. 
A battered reed he will not break off. What does that mean? It means he's gentle. Those people that are hurting, he's not going to put them out of his misery kind of thing. You ever seen something that just needs to be put out of its misery? The candle has just burned too long, and you're just like, enough of this. Anybody? No? This fly is moving slow enough where I can get him now. That kind of thing. Notice what Jesus is saying. The people that are broken down, hurting, he's not here to deal with them harshly. He's a gentle Savior. Notice it says here, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. He's compassionate. Until he leads justice to victory, perfect justice, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Everybody stick with me this morning. Verse 22. Then, here's a change in time. Then, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now, stop for a second. The demon-possessed man was brought to Jesus. Could this be a trap? Possibly. Notice. Specifically, it's kind of like the woman that's caught in adultery. Lord, we caught her in the very act of adultery. What do you say about that? Well, according to the Old Testament, where's the guy? Because we need to stone him too. Hmm. Well, we hired him. We can't bring him. He already got his money. Right? But her, condemn her. Very interesting to see how religion plays it for themselves. Watch this. He healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Verse 23. All the crowds were amazed. Is this a public event? All the crowds are amazed. It's just this one event that's brought up. Healing a demon-possessed man. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, notice their conclusion. This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now stop. When you hear the phrase, son of David, from everything that we've looked at since my first Sunday here, what does that immediately bring to your mind? What is it? What? What is it? The royal lineage of Jesus. Remember? Remember Matthew's genealogy at the very beginning? The son of David, son of Abraham. Not only is he the descendant of the promised seed that was going on, but God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, of your house and of your throne, it will be forever. The Messiah will sit on David's throne. They get this. See, we think we, we, don't, we don't totally grasp this because we're sitting here in 21st century America. In 1st century Jewish culture, they're seeing these miracles go off and they're sitting here thinking, because it's almost too good to be true, could this possibly be the Messiah that we've waited for, that was promised us, our deliverer, that's going to take care of us, that's going to overthrow Rome, that's going to bring in this righteous rule that is going to sit on the throne of David, that is going to be the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham, everything that God had ever told us over time and history, could it all be culminating in this one person? This is the conclusion that the crowds who are witnesses to everything that Jesus is doing are coming to. You have to remember, he lived an incredible life. No sin. No one could accuse him falsely. Why were they looking for a reason to accuse him? Because they couldn't find anything. Everybody get this? So we've got to do something to get him out of the way. That's where the hard heart leads. The crowds are looking at him going, wait a second. He resembles everything I've ever read in the Old Testament. Could this be him? Now, the leaders have to make a call. Because chances are, 
If you've got a question about if something could be true, and it involves God, salvation, sin, whatever it is, you go to a religious leader in order to get verification to talk the matter over with. Leaders speak for a nation. Don't miss this, guys. Watch this. Verse 24. If you need to circle it, highlight it, underline it, anything. But when the Pharisees heard this, stop. Is this a threatening conclusion that the crowds have come to? So notice, they don't act any way other than how media acts. If everybody's come to a common sense conclusion, we're going to tell you that it's actually something totally different and lead you down the path of a lie so that you don't believe what is really in front of your eyes. That's the idea. But the Pharisees, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. This one verse right here is the change, the changing point of history. In all of your Bible, in all of known history, verse 24 is the hinge, turning the corner, changing point of history. And here's the reason why. What did they just do with Jesus? They blasphemed him. But it's not just that. It's deeper. It's deeper. I mean, we got to dig for this. They what? They denied him, yes. But we still got to dig. Everybody get your shovels out. Let's start digging. They rejected him, yes. What? Hold on. They put themselves above him, okay. What else? Somebody over here said something. Today is group participation day. Everybody get ready. I'm going to get so close, I'm going to spit on you. But, but not, not purposely, just because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a watery talker. They, they accuse him of being in cahoots with the devil. They were leading everyone astray. Leaders speak for a nation, right? Put yourself there. A demon-possessed man. Imagine he comes in here. He can't be the Messiah. He's working with the devil. Imagine Jesus is here. And he comes over and he casts this demon out. And we're all like, whoa, wait a second. What is going on? And because the powers that be feel threatened. Stop. Is healing a demon-possessed man a good work? It's common sense, isn't it? Is telling a man with a withered hand to stretch out your hand so that it's made whole, is that a good work? Doesn't that Jesus' conclusion? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But notice what they say. No, 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 no. The way how he cast out demons and everything, actually his power comes from Satan. Does that even make sense? Anybody know what the word Beelzebul means? No, more than that. It means the Lord of dung is what it means. Everybody see how this is a, we're going to do everything we can to destroy his character and credibility at this moment. 
So here is amazing, wonderful manifestations through miracles that Jesus is performing. People are getting healed. People were following him. He healed them all. People are stretching out withered hands. They're made whole. And these guys who speak for the nation are leading the people in a direction of saying, no, this is the devil's work. This is everything that Satan is doing amongst you. They are taking the glorious good works of God as manifested as never before in a heightened sense of revelation right before their eyes, therefore a heightened sense of of accountability right before them, and they are saying, in all the conclusion that I can come to in looking at this situation, that is Satan's fingerprint. Does everybody see how dangerous this is? Notice this isn't unbelief. This is anti-belief. This is important for you guys to get. It's not unbelief. It is anti-belief. I see the truth before me, and I refuse to believe it or subscribe to it, and I will go in my hard-hearted direction despite the evidence. See, this is why when we're dealing with people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and all these guys who say they're atheists now, they're not atheists. It's not that they don't believe that there's not a God. They know God exists and they hate Him. They are anti-theists. Notice it's not just that the Pharisees don't believe. They know darn well who Jesus is. You can't deny it. It's so blatant at this moment in history, you would have to be a fool. Notice that they have poor hermeneutics. You laugh, but I'm being serious. Notice that they've looked at all the evidence that is plainly written out right in front of them and they have interpreted it in order to fit their own agenda. They're scripture twisters at the finest. They would lose power. What do you mean? Yes, they would. They would be nobodies. This, guys, verse 24, is the unpardonable sin. Some of your headings, if you look at your headings, some of your headings will say it's verses 30 through 32. It's not. 30 through 32 refers back to what took place in verse 24. This isn't the first time that they did this to him. They also did it in chapter 9. They also did it in chapter 9, verse 34, if you want to mark that. And Jesus was gracious on them at that moment. But here's the thing. because Why did Jesus perform miracles? People debate whether or not miracles were true or not. When Jesus performed miracles, it's because it was the seal of Yahweh that this is my chosen one who is anointed to be the next king. His miracles testified to who he was. In fact, do me a favor. Put your finger right here. Turn over to John 5. There are seven witnesses in Scripture of who Jesus is. We're going to look at just one of them for a second. I just want to point this verse out to you. There's four more in this passage. I just want to point this out for a second. John 5. John chapter 5. Look at verse 36. John 5, 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, being John the Baptist. For, here's the reason why, underline it, the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, 
the very works that I do testify. Notice, they testify about me that the Father has sent me. They preach is the idea. They are witnesses of who Jesus is at this time. His works, His miracles, they proclaim His Messiahship. And as knowledgeable as the Pharisees are of everything that they understand about the Old Testament inside and out, when the very manifestation of everything that prophecy ever pointed to was standing in front of their faces, they used the opportunity to lead other people astray, saying that he was from Satan. Everybody see how dangerous this is? This is insane. Let's go ahead and cure up the question that you're probably asking. Can we commit the unpardonable sin now? No, you cannot. And here's the reason why. You do not have the Lord Jesus Christ in bodily form doing miraculous miracles that are testifying to his Messiahship in front of your face right now and you calling him Satan in response. Can't do that right now. It is not able to be committed. But here's what you find. The Pharisees, because of their anti-belief, have just rendered themselves unsavable. They cannot be saved now. It's very interesting. There are some instances in Scripture where you find people commit such acts, they cannot be saved. There's one in Revelation, I can't remember right now. Tom could probably tell you. you think about it. Ask him. Um, moving on here, though. Let's see what the response is. Verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, there's Jesus exercising his omniscience again, right? Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, and notice how he reasons. Here's his response to this situation. The good works you do are from the devil. Here's what he said. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now you know that just from trying to fight with your family to get to church on time this morning, don't you? They're going this way, they're going this way. We're both trying to go the same way, but yet we're going opposite ways. We didn't get anywhere. That's usually how it goes. You find people that are business partners and they're going to take a business in a separate direction than what the other person wants to. All they can do is split unless they humble themselves and get together. They've got to have a unified point. Now notice this. If Satan tries to work against himself, he defeats himself. It doesn't work. But notice what he goes on to say. Verse 26, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. Here's the question. How then will his kingdom stand? Will it? It won't stand. Now notice how he moves this next. He takes it up a notch. Verse 27. If by the Lord of dung I cast out demons, and I love it, he tacks this on. By whom do your sons cast them out? Now what does this show? It shows that the idea of exorcism was not far thinking or far reaching of what we probably consider it today. By sons there, it may mean disciples of the Pharisees. It may mean their literal offspring. But here's what we know. Jesus wasn't the only person that had the ability to exercise demons at that moment. There were other people there that were to cast them out who were affiliated with the Pharisees. And because they were able to cast them out, their argument about it being from Satan made no sense. Otherwise, their sons do it by Satan. Everybody see that? So he gives you one argument. If you try to fight against yourself, you can't get anywhere. He gives you a second argument. This idea of casting out demons isn't anything new because you got people who are affiliated with you that do the same thing. And if I'm doing it from the power of Satan, what do you want to conclude about them? 
Everybody see this argument? Man, Jesus was like Perry Mason on fire, wasn't he? So notice, watch this, move on. He says here, for this reason, for this reason, because the evidence is so clear in the argument that he's offering, for this reason, they will be your judges. They will, convince, they will condemn you. Why is that? Here's the thing, folks. Evidence doesn't lie. The evidence about who he is doesn't lie. We can sit here all day long and say, well, I don't believe Jesus is like that. And that's fine. But until you read through these gospel accounts and then make an educated opinion, we have no ground to stand on. They're as trustworthy as can be. Now watch this. Verse 28. This is the knife in the gut. But if I cast out demons by the what? Stop. Take note of this. Okay? Because conservative Christians are scared to death of the Holy Spirit. You're afraid he's going to make you roll around on the floor with your back of your head and foam at your mouth. He's not going to do that. That doesn't happen in Scripture. Okay? Sometimes we're so scared to death of the, of the third person of the Trinity, we forget that he's there. The miracles that Jesus does are because God is manifesting the Holy Spirit's power through him. Does that make sense? They testify to who he is. Why? Because the Spirit is with him. Didn't we see back in verse 18, I will put my Spirit upon him? What does that mean? It means that he will have the opportunity, the amazing privilege of doing miraculous works like miracles because the Spirit is the one doing them through him. That's the idea. So notice, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, what do you conclude? Watch this then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If all of the evidence points to the fact that the Spirit of God is actually the origin, the source of the power that is coming through me to heal people and to do these good things, that testify, that witness to who I am, then here's the problem, guys. The kingdom of God is standing right before you because the King is standing right before you. And because you have equated the king's power with Satan, you have missed the kingdom. Does everybody see that? At this moment in history, the kingdom is now placed on the back burner of God's timeline. Before Jesus' ministry was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, correct? Matthew 4.17. Matthew 3.2. John the Baptist came along. What was his message? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Make straight the paths of the Lord. You don't want to miss the Messiah when he shows up, guys. Why is that? Because if you miss him, the kingdom will not come. Now that these leaders have spoken for the nation, Jesus no longer speaks about the immediacy of the kingdom. It now takes a back seat. And when he does speak of the kingdom, he always speaks about it as being something else. Another time. It's never mentioned to be at hand anymore. It has been postponed. He now changes his message to the idea of his betrayal and death and resurrection. Whereas before, he never talked about it. Everybody see why this is such a crazy situation going on here. This changes everything in history. Moving on here. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 29. Here's a fourth argument. 
Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? He'd have to be stronger than the strong man, right? Is Jesus stronger than Satan? Yes, and demon-possessed people are his property. So notice, Jesus is saying, my power is as such to where I actually can hold Satan's power at bay and set his property loose. I can plunder everything he owns. Why? Because he's the Messiah. Notice he says here, and then he will plunder his house. Verse 30, he who is not with me is what? Against me. Notice what he says. And he who does not gather with me does what? Guys, there is no fence. There is no fence with Jesus. None. Neutrality is a myth. How many of you go to college? Raise your hand. Scarily, you raise your hand. Stephanie, what are you taking? Are you taking any philosophy classes, psychology classes? Have you taken any of that stuff? Not yet. Okay. This is free. I'm not going to charge you for it. Okay? You're going to hear arguments made to where we have to remain neutral. Maybe you've heard this about the reason why we can't talk about the Bible in schools and things like this. We have to remain neutral. Neutral to everybody. Let me ask you a question. Excluding God from a child's thought process, is that neutral? No, it's actually child abuse if you think about it. If God is the creator of all things, we're saying let's perpetuate a lie. Let's all lie together. That'll work. That'll be the answer. Does anybody enjoy lying to kids? Okay. I don't know if the school board had any openings or not. But that's how serious that is. It is serious to think that, to, to take the things that have been plainly revealed blatantly by the God who loves us and say, no, that just doesn't fit with what I had going on. There is no neutrality. There is no fence. You're either with Jesus or you're against Him. You're either helping gather or you are scattering people. Now, if you wonder what that's like, yesterday I thought this was a perfect example. Nathaniel comes up to me. Cheerios, Daddy, Cheerios. I said, okay, buddy, I'll get you some Cheerios. So I got him a little bitty Tupperware, only about that deep, put some Cheerios in there. He goes over, sits down, and all of a sudden I hear, and you know what happened, right? I look over. It's almost like he's proud. The Tupperware is upside down. He's kind of got his foot up there on top of the Tupperware, like. Cheerios everywhere. I looked at him. I said, pick up, clean up. He just starts eating them off the floor. (laughs) That's what we do at our house. We eat Cheerios off the floor. (laughs) You can ask Rachel, don't I eat Cheerios off the floor? Yes, I do. If you don't gather, you scatter. Everybody get the picture? Like Cheerios. That's where you are with Jesus. You're either there or you're not. Notice what he says here. Therefore, anybody want to take a hermeneutic leap into what I just said? What's that there for exactly? Anytime it's there, what's that there for? And it better be deep 
Kentucky, right? What's that there for? Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Aren't you thankful for that? Yes, but, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. What does that mean? Think context. Who makes it possible for Jesus to do those works? Spirit of God. Won't the Spirit of God rest upon Him? Yes, He will. Notice He says, but if my works are from the Spirit of God, if that's where they come from, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see what I'm saying? My miracles testify to my Messiahship. That's what He's saying. So notice, by looking at this and blaspheming against the manifest miracles through the power of the Spirit, you are now unsavable. You can't be forgiven. That's what he's saying. He says here, verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, Jesus, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, who speaks against the manifestation of those miracles that they have clearly seen, notice what it says, it shall not be forgiven him. And just so Jesus made sure he wasn't mincing words, watch this, either in this age, being the church age, that's what we're in, the church dispensation right now, or in the age to come, or in the coming kingdom. These men are unsavable. Why is that? Because they had such heightened revelation that at the moment when God had displayed everything so clearly for them so that they could simply believe and be saved, they instead let their hard hearts accredit His works to the devil. Let me show you one more verse. Turn to John 1. Because it's interesting how John deals with this situation. It's not mentioned in his gospel, but he touches upon it. And I want you to see something that's tragic. The gospel of John is written to unbelievers. It is the only book in the Bible that is written with the purpose of bringing people to faith in Christ. I thought it was real interesting when they came out with the Jesus movie. Anybody remember the Jesus movie, VHS, everybody got one? Everybody remember that? You probably taped Super Bowl over it or something? Okay, <laughs> making sure. But the Jesus movie that came out was a verse-by-verse, live-action shot film where a guy was portraying it out of Jesus interacting with people of the Gospel of Luke. But when it came to talk about how somebody got saved at the very beginning... They had to quote a passage from John. Why is that? Because Luke won't tell you how to come to faith in Christ. That's not the reason why it was written. John, on the other hand, was. Now here's the amazing thing. John touches. That's all he does. Touches this situation. Look at chapter 1. Look at verse 11. Here it is. He came to his own. Who are his own? The Jews. But look what it says. And those who were his own did not receive him. Did we just see that take place? Matthew uses chapters 1 through 4 and 8 through 12 to unfold this truth, because that's who his audience is. Notice John just uses a verse to talk about those chapters. But look what it says. Here's, here's, here's the great relief that we can all say amen about. But as many as received him, to them... He gave the right to become children of God. 
even to those who, what's the word? Believe in His name. Now, we're going to do this in a uniform way because it gets on my nerves when I'm trying to say something and you guys do it. Everybody close your Bibles. Hey, I'm going to be honest with you, okay? I love you, but I'll be honest with you about it. I've been thinking a lot about this. Think with me for a second, okay? Where are you at in your walk with Christ? Don't answer out loud. But think about where you are. What's he doing in your life? What prayers is he answering? Are you praying? Maybe you're not praying. Are you in the Word daily? Maybe three times a week. Maybe Sunday's the only time you crack it open. Maybe you stopped bringing your Bible because you knew I'd offer you one. I don't know. Where are you at taking with whatever God is teaching you and pouring it over into other people? Because that's the whole reason why we know anything. The reason why God teaches us anything is so that others can benefit, not us. They benefit from His teaching through us. Where are you at in that? Because here's what's scary to me. We can't commit the unpardonable sin today, so none of us are going to be unsavable people. I'm thankful for that. And we know that salvation is very clear in John. Yeah, the Jews totally missed him. They didn't receive him. But he equates the idea with receiving as believing in his name. So that's pretty clear, yeah? Do you believe that? But here's the concern that I have. What is God doing week in and week out to get our attention? What is he doing to say, hey, look over here. Read this. It's not a coincidence. I set it up. I took your hand and led you to this place. You didn't know why you were driving around. You ended up here. You don't understand why they responded that way. But it's because I wanted to show you this. Guys, God is not just distant and ethereal. He is personal. Sometimes if we don't exercise 1 John 1, 9 throughout the week, we're missing a lot that He's trying to show us because sin has blinded us. So here's my scary point that I sometimes wonder for us. Why? Because I want nothing but God's stuff for you. Does God go to great lengths to try to get our attention and because we're so busy living life, we've missed it? Do we have, for what we could handle in capacity with the completed Word of God, having all the knowledge that we do, do we have a tendency to miss... When God wants to bring billboards of heightened revelation to our understanding. Do we find that our hearts want to lead us in a different direction? Because if that's the case, and if He is going to great lengths to reveal Himself, whether that be just through Bible study or a trial that you're going through, the fact that you need to ask other people to be praying for you, Today, Lori came over to me and said, Terry is really sick. He's got to start work tomorrow. Would you pray for him? I thought, you know what? That is the most Christian thing I can think of right now at this moment. I got a need, and I want God's people to seek our God together for the restoration of his health. I'm thankful she didn't come up to me with a mask 
Not literally. But she wasn't here to be plastic. She didn't come to church to be fake. She had a need. It's obviously stressing her out. I'm sure it's stressing Terry out. And she was real about it. One of the worst things that could ever possibly happen to this church is that we go on and exist for generation after generation after generation until the Lord raptures us home and we were as fake and as plastic as we could be with one another because we never bothered to be sensitive for when the Spirit wanted to reveal things to us in His Word and in the circumstances that are around us. Because if that's the case, here's what you find out. We never knew what it was, experientially speaking, to walk in the Spirit. We never knew what it was to let God's Word dictate our path and direction rather than trying to squeeze somebody into our schedules, maybe. Does everybody see how dangerous that could be? The Pharisees could not have asked for any more evidence for the direction they needed to go. And when it came time for the choice in their situation, they stepped themselves into a realm that made them unsavable. Now, while that's not a reality for us, it still translates. It still translates in this idea of what is God doing in my life and am I with Him on it? Or do I find the fact that, well, if I'm not with Him, what did we just read? If you're not with me, you're what? Against me. If I'm not gathering with Him, then what am I doing? I'm scattering. I'm fighting God's plans. Wait a second. I'm His child. Can a house divided against itself stand? No. Everybody see how tragic that could be in our personal lives. So I hope that we're sensitive to that. What is God showing you? And are you walking with Him in it? Are you responding to what He's shown you? Let's pray. God, thank You for our time together. Thank You, God, for looking at this um, incredible situation in history and how all events have changed to where now the kingdom will not come in the time of the Jews, but has been postponed to a later time. Father, if you have been knocking at a door where we refuse to answer, I pray, God, you bring us to our senses, that we would stop telling you no, that we would stop rationalizing what we want to do and what our schedule dictates and how we're going to serve and we would just simply say yes, and we would be with Jesus on everything that he wants to be on. Father, make us obedient people. Help us to realize with the way that you extend yourself to love us, it just doesn't make any sense to fight you. Father, please bless our week, and may it be one where we are humbled and aware of your call on our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.